the biggest stumbling block for all of us seems to be that we really just don't believe how much God loves us. It's so hard for us to fathom that there's nothing I could do to make him be more pleased with me. Hey friends, welcome to the Hope and Help Project, the podcast that cultivates compassionate biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. I'm your host, Christine Chapel, and I'm thankful you're here to join in on today's conversation with Kendra Fletcher. In today's episode, Kendra and I talk about her book, Lost and Found, Losing Religion, Finding Grace, to learn how the gospel of Jesus Christ offers freedom from self-righteous religious behaviors and attitudes. If this is your first time listening to the show, be sure to learn more about the Hope and Help Project by visiting christinemchapel.com forward slash project. The link is posted in the show description, and by visiting that page, you can learn all about the mission of the podcast. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Kendra Fletcher is a mother of eight, speaker, author, podcaster, and writes regularly for Key Life Ministries. The Fletchers reside in California, where they play in the Pacific Ocean as often as possible. Hey there, Kendra. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Christine. I'm very happy to be here. Your book called Lost and Found, Losing Religion, Finding Grace really gripped me as I was reading it this last week. I honestly was just so surprised about how open and vulnerable and sometimes downright repulsed you were with the self-righteous mindset that you and your church community had adopted during the particular season of life that you were writing about in the book. So what compelled you to share your story with so much transparency? And can you offer a high-level summary of the trials you and your family endured, which really led to this catalyst of heart change? Yeah, so we... (laughs) had this giant homeschooling family. (laughs) That's Mm kind of who we were and how we defined ourselves and uh, loved the Lord, um, but had just been kind of chugging along, doing our thing and, and hoping God was very pleased with us and trying to do all the right things and trying to say all the right things and trying harder and, you know, doing more and all of those things that we just were at the time wrongly equating with God's pleasure in us. And so, you know, just kept kind of trying to do what we thought was the spiritual thing or what God would would say, oh, well done. And really forgetting the centrality of the cross, a relationship with Jesus, kind of running after behaviors uh, that would mark us, you know, as sort of these really stellar Christians. And so that's kind of where we were. And then lo and behold, one July hot morning, I uh, went to check on the baby who was seven weeks old and he was in a coma. He had been completely healthy the night before when I put him to bed. But when I got up there and and peered into his Moses basket, he had clammy, clammy skin, blue lips. His eyes were rolled back in his head and it was shocking. It was one of those things that you know, a mother never, ever, ever wants to see. And so it was a 911 call and a speedy ambulance to the ER. Uh, We got there and they didn't know what was wrong with him. And so long story short, he actually had just caught a deadly virus. So they, they transported him to a children's hospital and he was on life support, kidney failure, liver failure, heart damage, brain damage. And we just stood over this little baby, this little tiny guy and had no idea what his future was going to be. But because of that experience, which of course is all the things you think it is, if you're a parent, you know, (laughs) horrifying, life-changing, 
um, humbling, just, you know, all, all the things stressful and heard God say in that moment, you know, you guys, you have your focus on everything but me. And so we scooped up that little baby and took him home to an unknown future uh, when he had actually won his little fight for his life there. And God, you know, was doing something, churning, churning, churning something in our hearts. And then just six months later, I was returning home from a little bowling trip with my kids and I ran over our daughter in our driveway with our 12 passenger van, our five-year-old that has a whole lot of whole lot of stuff attached to that story, including a CPS investigation and all kinds of ways in which God was just shaking our perfect little world. Our perfect little snow globe was upside down <laughs> and all the snow was falling and all the things were falling over and all the things were bumping into each other. And, and again, really clearly heard the Lord say, your hope is not in me. Your hope is in all these things you are doing. And so we're rattled. We're really working through things. We're, we're trying to figure out where we've gone wrong. Not that we felt like, oh gosh, you know, God's doing these things to us because we had done the wrong things or he's punishing us. It was not that. It was just sort of like a rug pulled out from underneath us. And it really was showing us where our idols were. Um, I mean, that's, that's it. Our idolatry, you know, what, what we were really placing our hope in, um, our good parenting and our choice, choices and our church and our theology and all of these things were tantamount. And Jesus was just sort of left in the dust um, for us. And then just another year later, we woke up uh, one morning, all of us had had the flu and one of our daughters, an eight-year-old was, was sicker than the rest of us. Um, but she was in septic shock that morning. So we flew to the ER with her and she had had a, a ruptured appendix that probably had ruptured 24 to 48 hours before, but because we were all sick and we were all throwing up and we were all you know, like kind of sore tummies and everything, yeah. she, she just got lost in all of our sickness. And so, you know, I thought that was like a Friday morning and I thought, oh, we'll be home by Monday. You know, it's a ruptured, it's just an appendix. Appendix, do they just take them out? It's like tonsils, no big deal. But that was not the case for her. She was extremely ill. Uh, we, we went through three surgeries and it has some permanent, you know, ramifications in her life. And so by that time, we're talking 18 months of almost losing three kids. God was very, being very clear, yeah. <laughs> very clear. We could not ignore, but that's the long and short of our story. Um, the, the very, very quick version but as you might well imagine, you don't go through something like that, particularly with children, I think, very young children, that it does not leave you completely changed in one way or another. You know, as you were sharing that story, and I already had read it in the book, but just listening to you say it again really made me think of a C.S. Lewis quote that he wrote in his book, A Grief Observed. And I'm going to read it to you because I think it just describes exactly what you were going through in that season. So his quote says, God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or love in order to find out their quality. He knew it already. It was I who didn't. In this trial, he makes us occupy the dog the witness box, and the bench all at once. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize the fact was to knock it down. And I just, when I hear you say that over and over again about God is telling us, but we're not getting it. It's like he was literally knocking down that house of cards that you had built in that season to show you really where you had been putting your hopes in. Does that, does that sound like that lines up with what you were talking about? Oh, absolutely. I've never heard that quote. And actually, it's made me really emotional um, because that's exactly it. Yeah. We had built something that we thought was 
And, and when we, you know, we talk about it with our kids because our oldest children were 17 and 15 when all of this happened or, you know, right around those ages. And so it's very much real to them. You know, they right. lived these experiences. In fact, our, the son who was 15 at the time is a new dad. And he recently said to me, mom, it's very hard for me to not stand over her crib and watch every breath mm -hmm. because he walked that road with our baby yeah. and loved that tiny little boy, you know, as a 15 right. year old loved that new little baby. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's exactly it. You don't realize, I think in the midst of it all, how much in your trying to please God. I mean, that was what I was going to say that, that we really had a heart to please God. Our desire was to honor him in the choices we were making. But in all of that, we were striving so beyond what he'd ever asked us to do. Um, and we weren't allowing him to do the work. We were building a house of cards. Well, again, some of the reflections you make in the book are so stark. And I really want to encourage, if the listener today has not read it yet, please do yourself a favor and get a copy. It's a short, quick read, but just so compelling. And in the book, you write, quote, the bottom line was that we really loved our religion a whole lot more than we loved our Savior. What did you mean by this statement? In what ways was this love of religion manifesting itself in your daily thoughts, attitudes, and behaviors. I think I do kind of talk a little bit about our backgrounds. I was raised in a Christian home, passionate believers. I have brothers who are still in ministry to this day. And, and it's a, it's a lovely, lovely gift that I was given. And my husband came to faith in high school and we both were very earnest believers. And so the problem, um, and I think this happens to likely most of us, if not all of us, is that we said, okay, okay, I got the gospel. I got that. I know that story, like the back of my hand, please stop telling me. I know the gospel. I get it. I, I know it every Christmas. I know it every Easter. Now, what do I do? Tell me what to do. Tell me what it looks like to live as a Christian woman. Tell me what it looks like to be a Christian man, a Christian family. What are the things we have to do? What, you know, what are the choices we need to make? And so our hope began to shift from a crucified and risen Christ and the redemptive work he was doing in our own lives. It began to shift from what he was doing to what we needed to, what we thought we needed to do. And so instead of understanding that the fruit of the spirit was wrought in our lives because of the work of God in our life, we began to make a list really. I mean, in so many ways, not really with a pen and a paper, you know, yeah. but just because we sort of had this idea in our head. And I think we all do this to some extent. I know for me, my mom was really involved in women's Bible studies. And so to me, that's a Christian woman. A Christian woman does this thing, this thing, this thing, this thing. That's what a Christian woman does. And so it became about the doing and um, the optics, maybe on some, you know, some level, just all the things we had to do instead of realizing that all I really had to do was learn to rest in what God was already doing in my life. And that by really chasing Jesus, that idea of abiding, which is so hard, like, what does that mean? How, you know, how do we just sit there and abide, you know? And I think it's easier to say, tell me what to do or, or what does it look like? Because I can go do that thing. And then therefore, okay, I'll, I'll be more of a Christian woman or I'll be more of a, I'll be a better believer. Or if I just study theology, if I understand what I believe about sanctification and justification, and you know, if I can really pinpoint what, what my theological stance is, then I will really understand my savior. But that's really not how it works. Those are all wonderful tools. And I I'm thankful for them. I'm thankful for the study of theology. I'm thankful 
for Bible study. I'm thankful for the choices we've made, but they're tools that God gives us. They're, they're not where we place our hope. And that's the problem. We had shifted our hope onto the gifts he had given us, onto the tools, onto the choices we were making. It sounds like one of the dangers of self-righteousness can be that we are attracted to fellowship with those who hold similar legalistic values. And you write in the book, quote, the tricky thing is that some of my idols looked really, really good, particularly around those who valued them as we did. So how did this become a bad thing for you and your family? And what was your experience like in trying to break away from that kind of fellowship? Yeah, you know, it's it's hard. You build a fellowship around some points, I, I guess. What What's the word I want to say? Distinctives, maybe, mm-hmm. or preferences. And so we really had begun that church when we started that church with a few other families. We, we built that church around distinctives, not around the gospel, not with a goal of reaching others for the gospel of Jesus Christ, not with a a desire to have a community where we all pointed each other to Jesus and the gospel. We really built it around several other things. And they were, they were lifestyle choices and they were theological points or theological, a theological bent. And so the problem with that is that none of that is anything we can stand on, right? I mean, we know this, like if you say, well, I was a founding member of First Presbyterian Church, or I was a founding member of First Baptist Church, and and they sort of stand on that. Mm. But that's crumbling. That's sinking sand. We stand on Jesus. You know, we stand on what He has done for us. We stand on the Word of God. We stand on what God has wrought in our lives and who He is. But when we stand on the again the tools, the gifts, the community, the things, then it's not ever going to uphold us because it's not the gospel. So there is, there's the problem. And then you begin to really become community pleasers. So even if you're not that person who says, oh, I'm, I'm a people pleaser, or it was really important to me. I fear man more than I fear God. You know, if I'm being honest with myself, I really, 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 really care what people think of me. And you do, you begin to, to make choices within the community. You begin to say, defend your choices. You begin to say things like, well, we don't have a TV in our home, but, um, but we let the kids watch you know, this thing on our computer. And here's why. And you feel like you have to defend those choices to somebody else, you know, to some other family. And it doesn't, like those things are choices that we can make within the freedom of our faith. Um, we shouldn't have to defend them to somebody else. Well, oh, I let my daughter, you know, wear this to school because, you know, those kind of things where we're, we're sort of defensive about our choices within the community because we're so reliant upon that community's approval of the choices we're making because the community's built its an entire identity and culture around all of these extra biblical points. Well, I know you're still really active in the homeschooling community, but I think because you address it in the book and because you are still involved, it's important to have the talk about some of the attitudes that existed when you were caught up in self-righteous living within that particular context. And I don't mean to say that everyone involved in the homeschool community ascribes to the thoughts and beliefs you were writing about in the book, but you do write that you and your friends believed that, quote, homeschooling was not only the best way, it was the only biblical way. And then you go on to include that statement in an overall account of the spiritual high ground 
background of Christian lifestyle choices you and your friends were making. Can you help us to understand this stance and perhaps some of the other common undercurrents that aren't often talked about in the homeschool community, but are actually harming children and their families as a result? Yeah, it's a sticky subject. And I know you and I both want to be very gracious and generous here because it's true. We still, I'm still homeschooling two of our three who are at home. Um, Our youngest is our our little special needs guy. He's our little one who um, caught that deadly virus that caused some brain damage. And he's in public school, special ed full time. Mm -hmm. And it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. I put him on that little bus (laughs) and I say, have a great day. And it's just wonderful for Mm -hmm. both of us. But I am homeschooling uh, part-time my high schooler. She does some stuff on campus and then full-time my seventh grader. Um, And I really love that we chose to homeschool our kids. It is not something I ever, ever wanted to do. I mean, we made that choice with our firstborn for very specific reasons to him. But 22 years later, I'm still homeschooling children and, you know, did not at all think for two decades that is what I would do. So I still very much love the fact that that has been a beautiful thing within our family. However, when we began homeschooling, it was the 90s and that's how old I am. It was the (laughs) 1990s and, um, and there was definitely, it was sort of the second wave of homeschoolers. I would say the first homeschoolers that, that stood up for their rights, you know, that, that whole bushwhacking group in the 1980s. So by the end of the 90s, it was a little bit, you know, a little bit more open. There were more people homeschooling. But still in that time, there was this communication that if you chose this, you were doing the right thing. You were doing the biblical thing. You were, you were going to set your children up for a life of spirituality that was going to be a cut above because you weren't dragging through them through all of the ungodliness in the public school system, et cetera, et cetera. And so, I mean, I, I could tell you the, the number of times I went to homeschool conventions and speakers would actually say the words, homeschooling will save your children. And so, you know, you begin to hear that it it appeals to two things. It appeals to your fear. You know, you have this fear that like, oh gosh, you know, what are they going to pick up in school? Or are they going to be taught atheism or or, um, evolution? Or are they going to get mixed up in drugs or, you know, all these things, right? So you have these fears as parents um, and some of them are legitimate for sure. But then it also appeals to your pride because at the same time you have these people telling you that, you know, good job choosing homeschooling. You've chosen the biblical way. You've chosen when God said in Deuteronomy to, to speak these things to our children when they rise up, when you rise up and when you walk along the path, well, that's what he means. He means homeschooling. <laughs> and so it appeals to those two things. And those were definitely driving underlying things in our lives as new parents, fear and pride. And so it does appeal. It's still there. I still see it rear its head in certain areas of homeschooling. Now, homeschooling here in 2019 has become a huge portion of the population um, for any number of reasons. And people aren't just making that choice because of their Christian faith. And so it's thankfully some of that has gone away, but that still is uh, prevalent in the homeschool community. And here it is again, a beautiful tool, something that God means for good in some families and with some children Uh, And we take that and we say, oh, we're going to make this our hope. Like, Mm -hmm. this is the thing that's really going to do it. Um, And I'm here to tell you that uh, (laughs) it's, it's not a good hope. It's a really lousy substitute for Jesus. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing that um, insight for those of us who are not active in the homeschool community and really just have no idea uh, that some of those things might 
still be prevalent. You know, maybe it just helps us to kind of keep an ear out for if we have friends who might be thinking in these ways, then maybe we can pray about an opportunity that the Lord might bring to us where we can share the gospel again. <laughs> maybe they need to, to hear it again and just make sure that their hopes are being placed in, in the right basket, I guess you could say. You know, honestly, Christine, it, it translates into so many areas. If your church is telling you that this is the only church, if your church is telling you that this is the church where you're really going to grow more than any other church, you know, if your job is telling you that this is going to be the thing that this is your hope, this is your, then, you know, radar on, (laughs) listen for that verbiage, because what it is saying is that this is, this is more important than the gospel. This is this God is not your hope. This thing is your hope. And again, if we, you know, we remember that these things are tools, they're gifts that God has given us along the way. Um, that he's probably going to use in our lives in some really beautiful and maybe even difficult way, then we're okay. But when we start to replace anything as our hope, we're in trouble. Absolutely. Well, I think it would be really easy to listen to all these things, especially what we just talked about, and think to ourselves, gosh, you know, how could anyone ever think that or say to ourselves, I would never do such a thing or never think such a thing. But we need to be honest and admit that self-righteousness is something we all struggle with every single day. It's, It's part of the old man that we have to put off as believers in Christ and, you know, instead learn to put on that righteousness that Christ gives to us that we did not earn or even deserve. I love this statement that you made when you wrote, quote, it's easier to follow a checklist and check off all the correct boxes than to listen to the gentle, faithful leading of the Holy Spirit. The truth is, we're all hope shifters. We're all putting our hope in something from day to day, and mine was in my good religious behavior. Can you unpack that a little bit further? I know you were just kind of talking about it in the last question, but would you unpack it a little further and maybe explain how specifically how the gospel helps us to break free from our self-righteous living? Yeah, absolutely. So this is really the deal. And I think we, we don't, we don't know it because it can be a little insidious or we don't want to admit it, but the truth is we're all really fantastic hope shifters. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and you know, what I mean by that is, is really simply idolatry, you know, and I think as believers, a lot of times we're like, well, I don't, I don't have an idol. Like I don't, I don't worship money and I don't worship, you know, worldliness or sex or, or, um, fame or, you know, like whatever the things that we mm-hmm. say when we think of idolatry, or I'm not praying to a statue or, um, I don't have the little golden thing around my neck or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever pops into our mind when we hear the word idolatry. I don't, I think idolatry is so dismissed from our culture, unlike it was for the Israelites, that, you know, surrounded by cultures that, that had actual idols, that we need new verbiage. And the new verbiage is simply that we are putting our trust or our hope in something other than the Lord God. And we do this every single day. I mean, I, I'll just give you a very honest, raw one right now. If I go on Christine's podcast, then, you know, more people will hear the message. And I really hope that they like me. And I really hope that they'll buy the book. And I really, hope, you know, like whatever, all these things that, that enter our hearts and minds, because we're just really lousy hope shifters. You know, we're humans. We don't see things um, with the eyes of eternity and the eyes of Christ. Uh, and it's an everyday thing. It's an everyday thing. And I think it's Spurgeon who said that we have to preach this, or the gospel to ourselves, you know, and that's really it. How do I recalibrate? How do I shift my hope back to the the gospel, back to God, 
back to what Jesus Christ has already accomplished at the cross, I have to preach the gospel to myself. It is finished. When you were saying that, I was reminded of a Tim Keller quote. He wrote a fantastic book, really on the topic of counterfeit gods. Actually, it was called Counterfeit Gods, but which, you know, talked about a lot of common idols that we wrestle with in these days. And one of the ways he defined an idol is he asked the question, what thing, if you lost it, could almost mean that you would lose the will to live. And then he goes on to say, what thing, if you lost it, could mean that almost all significance and value would be drained out of your life? Whatever that thing is, the Bible calls it an idol. And Mm -hmm. so I just love how he defines it. And you're right, you know, all throughout the scriptures, we're warned against, you know, children, keep yourselves from idols, flee from idolatry, uh, because it hurts us. In the end, it is hurtful to us. There's no idol that has ever delivered for us. Exactly. We always find ourselves in bondage to that thing that we thought was our hope. Yeah, I'm reminded of the scripture where Elijah is pitting the living God against Baal and basically telling the false prophets, hey, let's see whose God will rain down fire on this altar. And the false prophets are cutting themselves. They're crying out to Baal and they're trying or Baal (laughs) and they're, you know, beckoning him to pour down fire and he never responds. And that's how all of our idols are. You can cry to them, you can worship them, you could sacrifice for them and they're just going to keep demanding more and more and more of you because idols don't lay their lives down for us. We have to lay down our lives for our idols. And Jesus says the exact opposite. He says, I'm going to lay down my life for you. And all you need to do is believe. That's the one thing. Believe. (laughs) And we we get, we muck it up with all of our XYZ requirements. And it's just not, like you said, the extra biblical things that are just not necessary. Yeah. And I think, you know, it goes back to our humanity. We like the law. We want the law. Please put more law on me, you know. (laughs) Um, I was just reading John this morning, the book of John, and um, and was reminded that the the Pharisees just added all this other stuff. Like there there was the law about the Sabbath, and the reason why is because God has our best interests at heart. He loves us so much. He wants to give us a Sabbath rest. He knows that's going to be best for us, you know, spiritually, physically, all the way around. It's going to be better if we have this rest. And then the Pharisees come along and say, and that means... Point number one, don't do this. Point number two, don't do this. Point number three, you know, like suddenly there's all this stuff added to the very simple thing that God said, just rest, like just, just come here, come here, come underneath my wing and rest here. And I will pour out over you and you will be refreshed and renewed for the rest of your week. And, you know, here the human said, oh no, it looks like this. And this is the, these are the rules to follow. And this is how we do it. You know, right. and it, it, it makes us feel better. makes us feel like we're doing something, yeah. um, but God doesn't ask us to do something. We do these things that the Bible describes that Paul tells us how Christians behave, but we do them because God has wrought change in our lives because we've sat under his wing, because we've walked alongside of the shepherd or he's walked alongside of us. And he makes those changes in our hearts. You know, the working out of that are those things. But if we look to do the things first, we've totally done those in our own strength and shifted hope to those things rather than to what God is doing already in our lives. 
Well, as we've been talking about, we can all easily fall into the trap of Jesus plus something beliefs. You <laughs> pointed out that you have had Jesus plus reformed theology or plus homeschool or plus being a stay-at-home mom or plus giving family size over to God. Based on your experience and your observations, why doesn't a Jesus plus something belief system really hold anybody up in times of sudden tragedy and unbearable pain? Well, and you know, it's as simple an answer as Jesus himself saying, I am the way, I am it. <laughs> like it is finished. I am it. I paid it all. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, that's it. That's what you got. And we are everything. We've got your back. We are your hope. We are where the joy in your life will always be. We hold your future. We, you know, all of the things like, I'm it. This is, I am all you need. Believe. That's it abide. That's it. And so it is hard for us to think there isn't something more to that. Like if I, yes, again, I think it goes back to that. I've got the gospel. Yes, I got that. I got it. I know it. I know my Bible books in order. I can recite them to you. I know, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like whatever all the things are that we think, you know, are somehow like sort of beginning believer stuff or the milk, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then we, we lose that we lose. And we, we think we have to somehow add any number of things to that, any number of things. It's going to be different for all of us, but we all do it. Okay. Have you even seen like, uh, it just drives me crazy. I've seen these little things that say like, all I need is Jesus and coffee. And I'm like, no, 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 no. All you need is Jesus, honey. (laughs) Coffee is great. Well, I don't even drink coffee, but for people who love it, coffee is great. And give me a bowl of ice cream every day. I'd be very happy, but I don't need anything other than Jesus. I mean, really, truly, he is going to provide all of the things I need. And isn't he great for providing coffee and ice cream? (laughs) But, you know, and I realize it's just said in jest and it's cute and funny, but it is, it, it is really how we think. All I need is Jesus plus this job. All I need is Jesus plus a million different things we could all choose to tag onto that. Right. I just have to confess that when I do have my morning coffee, I thank the Lord for it. So I don't have to have it. But I also walk around and thank the Lord when I've taken a nice uh, cold sip of sparkling water, because I can't, you know, I don't drink alcohol. And that's not a self righteous thing. It's more of a medical health thing. So my choices are very limited. I don't get a lot of, you know, fun, fancy drinks. And so I thank the Lord all the time. And you can ask my husband when I'm drinking kombucha, like, Lord, thank you, Lord, for kombucha. Otherwise, this water <laughs> that I'd have to drink every day is so boring. <laughs> thank you for That's sparkly awesome. water. Thank you for coffee. So, yes, we don't need all those things, but they can be occasions where we just give thanks and say, Lord, this is awesome. Thank you for letting me have this today. Um, yeah, absolutely. And that's any number of things. Like, thank you so much for my husband. I'm so grateful for that guy. But my, my goodness, if I think it's Jesus plus my husband, we're all in trouble. You know, right. I mean, and I really hope that my kids don't ever say, oh, I, I just need my mom. My mom is where my hope is. Oh, good grief. I'm going to let them down this morning. (laughs) So, you know, oh no, no, I, all I want to do now as a parent, I realize that really all I can do homeschooling aside, good, you know, youth programs aside, great parenting choices aside, really all I can do is point my kids to Jesus. Because if I become Jesus to them, what good is that? I'm a lousy savior and I am not their hope. I'm going to go ahead on the limb here and I'm going to ask you a question that kind of rubs against what we're talking about because I'm asking you, what can we do? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but I'm going to ask it because there may be someone listening who wants to know, you know, we're talking a lot about self-righteousness and 
it's not only opposed to the cross of Christ, but it's also harmful to us to stay in this type of thinking and belief system. So if if we're starting to realize that we have been duped into this false belief, what should we do to address it spiritually and practically in our lives? You know, I love um, what Steve Brown says about this. He says, our prayer needs to change from God, what can I do for you to God, help me to love you better. Hmm. And I think, what does that mean? Like, how do I love God better? If we're asking God to help us to know him more, if we're asking him to show himself to us in ways that really minister to us, if we're asking him to show us how to love him and other people better, then that's it. Because the way it plays out, the things that we do flow out of that. And when we understand how much God loves us, you know, I think maybe that for some people, that's the prayer. God, help me to understand how much you love me. Because I find that when I speak to men and women across the country, the biggest stumbling block for all of us seems to be that we really just don't believe how much God loves us. It's so hard for us to fathom that there's nothing I could do to make him be more pleased with me. There's nothing I can do to make him love me more, to love me better, to give me better things, you know, in my life. And I'm not talking about even concrete things, but there's nothing I can do to get God to favor me anymore. Mm -hmm. He already does. He already loves us based on the merits of Jesus Christ, not on us. And so that's the tricky thing right there. In fact, I I had a recent conversation with my 18 year old daughter um, where she was really struggling with something. And I just turned to her and I said, honey, do you really believe how much God loves you? Like, do you know how deeply he cares for you and loves you? And she just began to sob. And she said, no, mom, that's it. I, I can't imagine that he loves me just because he loves me. And that's it. I think when we, we somehow can say to God, please show me, please let me rest in the love you have for me. And we begin to understand, we start to live out of the overflow of that love. Suddenly I can love my neighbor better because I am so secure in the love of God for me. Suddenly I can deal with my very tricky child because I understand how much God loves me. Suddenly I can get up and go into that meeting where I feel like people are, you know, aren't approving of me or my boss doesn't like me or my husband's angry with me or whatever the situation is. And I can say, you know what? It doesn't matter. I am so loved by God. I can, I can walk into a setting where I feel like nobody likes me or I don't know anybody. And so I'm very uncomfortable and I can say, it doesn't matter. You know what? God loves me, really loves me, like truly loves me. And it's okay. I I can do this thing. I can love this person. I can go forward and do this hard ministry. This thing that God is asking, I feel like God is asking me to do. I can do this because I'm so secure in his love for me. I appreciate that encouragement because in a few days, I'm about to go to a conference where I'm going to know no one and I don't do well in those situations. (laughs) And so now I'm going to remember this conversation and I'm going to walk into that room. And while I'm trying to fight, feeling extremely overwhelmed, I will say, you know, God loves me. And so I'm just going to be here and whatever. That's right. That's right. And you can, you can just rest in his love for you and realize that even if you never make a connection at that conference, even if it doesn't turn out the way you hoped it would, you can walk out of there saying, you know what? God is so good. He's so good. And he loves me and I'm secure sitting right there in his love. 
I resonated with one particular statement you wrote because I have also experienced a similar spiritual awakening in my battle against depression. You write, quote, I spent too many years trying to have the fruit of the spirit, trying to be loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. But it wasn't until Christ showed me how to give up and give over my will to him that the fruit began to grow. So why is surrender of will really at the heart of self-righteousness? Righteousness, And what do the scriptures say that help us to submit to God's will, even when we've become prone to micromanaging our own worlds? It's so interesting. Um, I'm 49 years old and I don't do not remember when I came to Christ. So from a very early age, I just knew I wanted to follow God. I just knew that that Jesus had died for me and I believed on him. And um, so I can't even tell you, you know, I would say I've been a believer since I was a very, very tiny little girl. The thing that has shocked me the most that I look back and it just still overwhelms me. We left that whole very legalistic life and community about, uh, yeah, it was nine years ago. We left in 2010. And I can tell you that in the last nine years of my life, probably in the, la- in the first five years after we left that situation, that there was more spiritual growth in my life than there had been in the first 40 years of my life when I was trying so hard to do all the right things. And when I finally gave up and said, and I did say like, Lord, this is too hard. I can't do this anymore. You know, you say that your yoke is easy and your burden is light, but this feels like shackles. I'm exhausted. I mean, think about it. I had eight kids in 15 years. My last two are 14 months apart. (laughs) You know, like that baby was five. My seventh was five months old. And I found out I was expecting my eighth. And I mean, I was just like, how, you know, what are you doing to me, Lord? And more like, how, what are you expecting of me? I can't do this. And, and not in like a, you know, a Moses type of way. Like I'm not equipped. I knew I could pull myself up from my bootstraps, but I was absolutely wiped out. I mean, nine pregnancies in 15 years, I was homeschooling all these kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, you know, <laughs> who can physically do what I was try- attempting to do? And I was putting that on God. I was, you know, like, assigning this thing to him that he had asked of us that he really hadn't asked of us. And so to look back on that and say, when I finally surrendered my trying and my doing and my striving, God suddenly began to do a work. He began to do his thing in my life. Um, And honestly, Christine, here's the interesting thing. I stopped reading my Bible. I know that sounds so weird, but for me, it was so tied up in my own religious behavior. It was a checklist item. Mm -hmm. It was a point of pride to be able to say to you, well, I read the book of John this morning. You know, it was Mm -hmm. like a, let me prove to you and let me show you how spiritual I really am. There was nothing relational in that for me. It, It stemmed back to years of summer camp and youth group and being told that I had to get up and do a quiet time. And if that I was really, truly a spiritual person, I'd get up early and do my quiet time. And, you know, I remember somebody telling me that, Uh, I believe it was either John Calvin or Martin Luther who got up and, you know, at 4 a.m. every morning and would pray for five hours or, you know, something like that. And he would say that he had to do this. It wasn't, you know, he, he, it wasn't like he had to make time to do it. It was that he didn't have time to do everything else if he didn't do that first. Well, oh my goodness, that laid a burden on me because I didn't take it the right way because I didn't understand the heart of it. I just took it as like a mandate that, that I needed to do. And so I stopped reading the Bible and God took all this scripture that had been 40 years growth in my life that I knew like the back of my hand 
and began to weave it into my life and speak his truth to me through what was already written on my heart. And then slowly I came to a point where I said, what if I listen to the Bible? Then it isn't, oh, I'm taking my highlighters and I'm doing these things in the book like I was taught to do in this Bible study. What if I could just let his word wash over me in an audible way? And that that began to do something new in my life. But it was that was driven by a desire to hear his word wash over me. It wasn't driven by religious activity. So as those things began to sort of work their way in my life and he began to do his work, I came back to spiritual disciplines, but they flowed out of, again, in that overflow of understanding his love for me, they weren't a religious activity that was separate from what he had already accomplished or was doing in my life. There was a part in your book where you confront a friend about the legalistic messages coming out of the church that you had helped plant. And after pleading with him for a return to gospel-centered preaching, your friend actually responded with a really surprising statement. And he said, quote, Well, when we say it's all about Jesus, we're forgetting that Paul tells us clearly that we are to work out our salvation. Can you, can you tell us why divine grace and moral effort are actually not opposed to each other when viewed through the gospel lens? And what, right. is, what does heart motivation have to do with obedience to Christ? Yeah, you know, it was a, a shocking disappointment to me. Like it hurt my heart when that was his response, because not because I felt like he was offending Jesus, you know, or something like that, but just sort of like, oh, I so badly wanted him to understand that it's all about Jesus. Those are the words that I heard when I was standing over my baby, watching his, you know, urine come out clear into a bag because his kidneys weren't working. And, and, you know, seeing hundreds of wires hooked up to his head that somebody in Australia was monitoring, you know, mm. because it was the middle of the night and it was daytime there. And I mean, you know, all of these things, he had a pick line and he was blown up in proportion because it looked like a little Buddha baby because he was, you know, his body was failing him. And I'm standing over this baby one night, just praying over him and singing to him. And there was a, a young woman who died just across the hall from him. And in that moment, I just heard the Holy Spirit say, Kendra, your hope is in all the wrong things. It is all about me. And you are so concerned about your clothing choices and your, your media choices and your homeschool curriculum choices and your, you know, the, the way you do church and with whom you do church and all that stuff. And you are missing that it is all about me. And that's really what began that work in our hearts to realize that I forgot Jesus. Like, how could we do that? How could we be these Christians who were so passionate about our faith and misappropriate what our faith even meant? How do we get so far from the core of Christianity and what we believed? So when I said that to him that night, it was with a pleading heart to say, please remind us Every time there's preaching in this church, remind us of what Jesus has done. Because if we forget what Jesus has done, we will always run to what we have to do. And that was every sermon at that time. I don't know where that church is now um, in terms of where they are in their spiritual growth. But at that time, every sermon was a hammering 
of what we were to do and how we were to live and what it looked like and, and God's wrath and how unpleased he would be or displeased he would be with us if we didn't do these things. Um, and it's such a heavy burden that God never means for us to bear. And he tells us that my yoke is easy. My burden is light. I've done all of this on your behalf. I've carried the heavy load so that you don't have to. That is one end of the gospel that then again, everywhere in scripture, we see that when God tells us, hey, this is how it works out. This is what it looks like to be a believer. This is what shows the world, or this is how we then work out our salvation. He always tells us who he is first. He always reminds us, hey, you are loved by my, by my infinite love. You know, it's, it's a love that outpours from now until the end of eternity. You are mine because I died for you and I gave everything for you and I call you mine. You are my sons and my daughters. Okay. Now remember because of that, here's what it looks like to live in and walk in grace. Here's the way in which my love is going to be shown to you. When you make a choice to walk away from your sin, you're walking into a life of freedom. And that's how that, that's how they, they work in conjunction. It isn't a, here's the law, here's grace, figure out a way for them to coexist. It's the law, the, the things that I'm saying I want you to do and the way I'm asking you to live is because I love you so, so very much. We've got time for one more question. So I want to invite you to do something I ask every guest of the Hope and Help Project to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. There may be someone listening to this episode who is feeling a little bit convicted about their own self-righteousness. Maybe they realize they have been trying to add man-made requirements to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a result, they've been reaping really sour fruits in their relationship with God and with others. Perhaps even worse, they have strayed so far from their first love of Christ that they hardly remember what grace is anymore. They don't know how they drifted away from the gospel, but they have, and they really aren't sure what to do next. What would you say to that person to give them the courage they need to lose their religion and reclaim the joy of salvation in Christ? Oh, I would say pray that basic prayer. Just pray that prayer. Just ask God to help you remember every day, because it's a daily thing. It's probably a many times a daily thing for me to say, Lord, please remind me how loved I am by you. Oh, I need to remember the gospel that my identity is so, so squarely and securely in what Christ has done. My purpose, my value, my worth, my significance, remind me, Lord, that they're all in you and that I'm, I've already triumphed because you've triumphed at the cross. There's nothing more I need to do to prove to you that I am worthy. You have made me worthy. It's finished. Well, thank you so much. Those are really encouraging words. And I think that for me personally, this conversation has just been like an injection of faith adrenaline into the heart. Just so much gospel saturation in this conversation. I think it's super helpful uh, from, like I said, for me personally, but hopefully super helpful for those who are listening as well. Now, Kendra, if there's someone who wants to get connected with your ministry and learn more about the writing that you do, where can they find you online? Yes. So I have a website that's just KendraFletcher.com. It's pretty easy. (laughs) Um, And actually there, if you really are one of those people who's struggling to leave a legalistic situation, or you feel like this is what has been grown in your heart, um, I have free resources there for people leaving that environment um, or who are just sort of wrestling with that. So, you know, 
head over to KendraFletcher.com and, and find those things for you, uh, including a second book I wrote called Leaving Legalism, Learning to Love God, Others, and Ourself Again. It, it, there's just so many of us, you know, wrapped up in so many different brands of Christianity. Um, and we, we find ourselves in bondage to that stuff. So I have a lot of, a lot of things there for you. I also write for Key Life, and that's at keylife.org. And those are probably the best places to find me. Very cool. Well, I will be sure to link to those profiles uh, in the show notes. So if you want to get connected with Kendra right now, you're super stoked about what all the things she said, and you want to check out her resources that she has available, scroll down to the show notes, click the link there, and that will take you to the show notes page where you can access that information that Kendra has to offer to you. Well, thanks again so much, Kendra, for taking the time to join us today to talk about self-righteousness and some of its ill effects and how we can break free through the power of Jesus Christ and his gospel. I just, again, can't thank you enough for just being transparent and honest about the struggles that you had in that really painful season of life. And I just praise God that he had redeemed that for you and for your family and that those of us who read your books and interact with your ministry online get to benefit as a result. Thank you again, Christine, for having me. I I love to talk about the gospel, so it was a treat. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit christinemchapel.com forward slash project. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help Project a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. One more thing, if you're looking for gospel hope and help for life's challenging problems, visit christinemchapel.com forward slash email. I send my email subscribers weekly biblical counseling resources on rotating topics. From videos, audios, articles, and recommended reading, these emails are designed to equip you to discover gospel hope and help in your own life. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help Project.